Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Will Colson. In this episode, we explore the dynamics of relations between Japan and Southeast Asia. In the gray world of international relations, Japan's post-World War II engagement in Southeast Asia has been a true success story. Japanese investment and development assistance to Southeast Asian states from Thailand to Indonesia has reinforced Japan's status as a responsible strategic partner in the Asia-Pacific. In recent years, Japan's security collaboration with Southeast Asian states has also grown. To learn more about the dynamics of Japan-Southeast Asia relations, we spoke with Dr. Kei Koga, a 2017 CSIS Strategic Japan Fellow who teaches at NTU in Singapore. You'll also hear from CSIS Southeast Asia Program Fellow Jeff Hartman, who sheds light on how Japan's contributions to regional architecture benefit Southeast Asia and Japan's ally, the United States. To start, we asked Dr. Kei Koga to explain the origins of Japan's Fukuda Doctrine, a policy implemented in the late 1970s by then Prime Minister Takeo Fukuda. This doctrine crystallized Japan's approach to economics and security in East Asia and reassured Southeast Asian countries. Dr. Koga describes the context that made the Fukuda Doctrine possible. Uh, the Fukuda Doctrine was important for two reasons, uh, two major reasons. Uh, one is the uh, changing strategic uh, environment in East Asia. In the late uh, 1960s, uh, the United States showed its political intention to disengage from the uh, North uh, Viet- uh, Vietnam. And then U.S. President Nixon uh, issued the so-called Nixon Doctrine. Uh, and while the United States promised to uh, maintain its uh, minimum level of the strategic commitment to East Asia, such as the uh, defense of the U.S. Treaty allies, uh, the do- Doctrine signals that it would not play a, a central role in creating the regional uh, security architecture. This U.S. Uh, posture eventually resulted in Sino-U.S. Uh, rapprochement, uh, which created a sea change in East Asian power structure. Uh, while there had been already increasing Sino-Soviet rivalry, uh, the tension in Indochina became exacerbated. In the meantime, the conflict between South and North Vietnam intensified, uh, despite the Paris Peace Accords in 1973. Uh, and in 1975, uh, North Vietnam defeated uh, the South. At the same time, Cambodia and Laos uh, fell into communist hands. The strategic instability in Southeast Asia opened a window of opportunity for other great powers in Asia, including Japan, uh, to fill the power vacuum. And uh, ASEAN member states were concerned about such possibility. And um, the other reason is that the uh, Southeast Asian countries, particularly uh, ASEAN member states, were uncertain about the future direction of Japan's foreign policy towards uh, Southeast Asia because of not only strategic instability, but also Japan's wartime aggression in the uh, Pacific uh, War, as you mentioned. Uh, to be sure, Japan attempted to uh, reconcile Southeast Asian countries and accommodate uh, their political demands in the post-war era. For example, Japan provided uh, war compensation, started to provide uh, ODA, and contributed to uh, economic development in the region. Japan negotiated with ASEAN member states on its export practice of synthetic rubber that threatened uh, the uh, market of Southeast Asia, uh, natural rubber, and uh, voluntarily restricted its export. Uh, however, despite these efforts, there was still huge skepticism uh, in the region, and this is very illustrated by the uh, massive anti-Japanese uh, demonstration uh, when the uh, uh, 1974 uh, 
Prime Minister Kakuei Tanaka uh, visited the uh, Southeast Asian countries. So in this context, the Fukuda Doctrine reassured uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, first, uh, the uh, Doctrine uh, said uh, Japan would not be a military power. Uh, second, uh, Japan would uh, promote a mutual understanding and heart-to-heart -heart relation with Southeast Asian countries. And third, uh, Japan would strengthen the ties with uh, Southeast Asian countries as equal partners. Um, these promises mitigated Southeast Asian countries' core concern about Japan and began to uh, uh, build trust uh, between them. Tokyo's emphasis on economic engagement and investment has solidified Japanese credibility in Southeast Asia. Jeff Hartman articulates why Japan, not the United States or China, is the partner of choice for Southeast Asia in infrastructure and investment projects. I completely agree with Dr. Koga. I think that Japanese development assistance and foreign direct investment is, I mean, it's been going on for decades. It's always been very well received by Southeast Asians, and it really has not only got over the legacy of war issues, which would have faded with time, but it's definitely helped with that, but it's also kind of increased its stature as the partner of choice for Southeast Asian countries. I think a lot of them look at Japan as kind of the ideal foreign partner where all the Southeast Asian countries are very focused on economic development and infrastructure and these sorts of things that the Japanese excel in and have focused on for decades. Japanese also don't kind of bring in the U.S. I think to a certain extent, Southeast Asians think the U.S. doesn't focus enough on economic issues and focus too much on security at times, which Japan is kind of the opposite of that. So they have that advantage. Japan also isn't quite as focused on internal governance the way the U.S. does, which sometimes rankles uh, Southeast Asian leaders. On the flip side, I think Japan is seen as a more trusted partner than the Chinese at times, who often are perceived as having ulterior motives or a desire for regional dominance that Japan doesn't have. So Japan's kind of in this sweet spot where they're providing the public goods and the investments that Southeast Asian leaders really like with a lot of the baggage that makes them more hesitant to, to approach China and the United States. Japan has also played a key role in ensuring the centrality of Southeast Asia in Asia's multilateral architecture. The Association of Southeast Asian Nations, or ASEAN, has a strong partnership with Japan that has elevated the role of Southeast Asia and helped bind East Asia with other Pacific powers, such as the United States. Dr. Koga explains that the origin of ASEAN lies in the bipolar environment of the Cold War. Uh, during the Cold War era, uh, the, uh, Japan contributed to the uh, consolidating ASEAN uh, as a regional organization in the Southeast Asia. Uh, the Cold War bipolar structure uh, the, uh, dominated the uh, regional balance of power in East Asia, and uh, it was extremely difficult for Southeast Asian countries to change this strategic uh, dynamics. Uh, in this setting, the political context of colonialism uh, uh, in Southeast Asia actually was uh, the uh, reminder for uh, Southeast Asia that the, uh, if the uh, Southeast Asia is uh, disun uh, 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 not united, then the, uh, there's going to be a, a great power intrusion, and then the, uh, the uh, Southeast Asia is going to be the, uh, the target of the uh, sphere of influence uh, uh, by the uh, great powers. So uh, the ASEAN was created in order to maintain its solidarity by creating the uh, regional resilience. Uh, and then to uh, prevent Southeast Asia from becoming a power vacuum and vulnerable to the uh, uh, great power intrusion. Uh, in this context, uh, Japan supported uh, strengthening each uh, member state's economic development uh, through ODA and trade, and facilitating their political stability. So it helped uh, ASEAN's institutional consolidation. Um, the, uh, but the uh, end of the Cold War uh, actually also uh, created the uh, pot potential uh, political vacuum in Southeast Asia. The United States was clearly uh, disengaging from the Southeast Asia due to the closure of its military bases uh, in the Philippines. 
At the same time, there are many ideas uh, regarding the establishment of a new uh, regional multilateralism uh, from the non-ASEAN member states, uh, and then this had the potential to marginalize uh, Southeast Asia uh, politically. The case in point was the creation of the uh, APEC, uh, Asia-Pacific uh, Economic Cooperation, and there was a certain level of political concern uh, that the Southeast Asia uh, uh, was once again susceptible, susceptible uh, to the great power intrusion. So um, Japan was sensible uh, to this concern, and when the idea of creating the regional security dialogue uh, in the Asia-Pacific uh, came out, uh, the uh, Japan supported the uh, ASEAN centrality uh, by stating that such a regional frameworks uh, should be based on ASEAN. Uh, this helps creating the ASEAN Regional Forum in 1994, and since then, Japan has been consistently supportive uh, to ASEAN-led frameworks, uh, which contributed to making the ASEAN as a core of the uh, East Asian regional multilateralism. The Japanese have also played a crucial role in arguing for the centrality of ASEAN to U.S. engagement in the region. Jeff Hartman points out Japan's fundamental role in regional architecture. Japan plays a very valuable role just because as an Asian country, they're always in the region, so when U.S. attention gets distracted to other areas of the globe, the Japanese kind of have the institutional memory, and when the U.S., I guess to use the phrase, pivots back to Asia, the Japanese are around to provide kind of valuable guidance on not only the regional architecture, but kind of guidance on which bodies are the most important to engage with and how to most effectively engage with those bodies and the countries within them. So after the Vietnam War, the U.S. kind of, in the context of the Cold War, there wasn't as much of a focus on Southeast Asia due to the ending of the Vietnam War, but also the ending of the communist threats to Indonesia and Malaysia. The Philippines, obviously the U.S. kind of was distracted more into Europe, other areas. And so Japan, very a very valuable role in that period before the financial crisis in 1997 of kind of maintaining the kind of alliance perspective in regional initiatives in Asia while the U.S. was distracted elsewhere. And so then when the U.S. came back after 9-11, first to focus on counter-terrorist threats, but then also now the rise of China, Japan is around to provide that perspective on how things have developed. And with the joining of EAS in 2011, Japan played a very instrumental role in kind of convincing U.S. policymakers that EAS was a valuable body that could be used in the future to discuss security issues, which was not entirely clear at the time, but I think has been borne out by recent events. Japan has the benefit of being an Asian country, and so they are on, in all these things at the ground floor. I mean, you can't have an Asian body without including Japan. It's very odd, whereas sometimes, and you saw this with EAS, initially some Southeast Asian countries were skeptical if the U.S. should be a member and being a Pacific power, but not an Asian power. And so Japan is good because they get into these bodies right away as an Asian power, but they can also be a voice to convince the U.S. to come in, but also convince other Asian countries that the U.S. belongs in these and will play a useful role. ASEAN's consensus-based decision-making process ensures buy-in, but can often lead to lowest common denominator outcomes. Following the recent arbitral tribunal decision in the case brought by the Philippines against China over maritime claims in the South China Sea, which the Philippines won, ASEAN did not declare any support for the decision. And states close to China, such as Cambodia, refused to agree to a joint ASEAN statement. Why not? I think the uh, simplest answer to uh, why uh, the ASEAN could not make any kind of statement uh, the, uh, regarding the uh, tribunal ruling is that the uh, ASEAN upholds its consensus decision-making process. At the end of the day, uh, ten ASEAN member states have their own national interests, uh, and they are quite often uh, different from each other. Uh, this is why uh, any ASEAN's uh, decisions are uh, not decisive, and uh, they are uh, the uh, 
to often call the uh, lowest common uh, denominator. And uh, on the tribunal ruling case, uh, some ASEAN member states, uh, particularly Cambodia, uh, which was the closest partner with the, uh, uh, China among the uh, ASEAN member states, was uh, unwilling to uh, produce uh, such a joint statement. Also, ASEAN-led institutions such as East Asia Summit uh, and then the ASEAN Defense Ministers Meeting Plus, ADMM Plus, have the uh, same consensus decision-making process. So external states, uh, in this case uh, China obviously, uh, they vetoed uh, such statements. Uh, the result is that the uh, member states as well as ASEAN as the institution uh, tends to politicize this uh, tribunal uh, ruling. For example, the Philippines President Duterte uh, temporarily set aside uh, the ruling and focus on economic cooperation with uh, China. Also, ASEAN, instead of issuing a joint statement, uh, came to agree with China that they, were, they would finish uh, uh, the dialogue of the, uh, 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 about the uh, code of conduct in the South China Sea by the first half of this uh, year, uh, 2017. Um, of course, uh, these maneuvers are good in terms of promoting short-term stability. However, uh, if this becomes a regular practice, uh, international rules and norms become a tool for uh, political negotiations, and which is not helpful supporting a rule-based order uh, in the uh, East Asia and beyond. Japan's response to the threat that China's aggression in the South China Sea poses to a rules-based order in the region has expanded in recent years to include enhancing maritime domain awareness of ASEAN states. I think the, uh, uh, there are two things that the regional states can uh, actually pursue. Uh, one is the, uh, still using the ASEAN framework and then trying to uh, stick to the uh, kind of principles uh, that, that they, they uh, promoted, even though it might not be the, uh, realized uh, in the short term they have to uh, uh, repeatedly uh, uh, confirm and reconfirm that principle is still important. And at the same time, because the, uh, the uh, ASEAN uh, as an institution cannot have the uh, enforcement mechanism because the institutional design is not the, uh, uh, supposed to be uh, aiming that. So uh, what the uh, uh, ASEAN or Southeast Asian country can do is the, uh, trying to uh, create the certain uh, level of capacity to prevent uh, outsiders or the other states from uh, taking the uh, fatal accompli or the, uh, uh, any kind of the, uh, uh, the provocative actions. So um, I think external powers like uh, Japan, United States, and Australia, uh, these countries can uh, the help uh, Southeast Asian countries build the, uh, uh, the, uh, their own uh, Coast Guard capabilities as well as the uh, perhaps in the future are the military capabilities uh, to prevent uh, the states from uh, doing the fatal conflict. Jeff Hartman explains how Japan has stepped up its game in the area of capacity building for maritime security and how it fits in conjunction with similar efforts from the United States and Australia. Yeah, so the Japanese capacity of building efforts in Southeast Asia over the last few years have been very useful. I mean, they are being coordinated with the U.S. and also Australian efforts, so that's going on. Uh, the coordination has been actually very good for kind of such a nascent effort. I mean, there's obvious difficulties where different bureaucratic organizations who haven't worked together before are trying to coordinate. So those things have slowed it down a bit, but you have very close alliance ties between the Japan and the United States and Australia that have kind of smoothed that over. And I think Japanese assistance is very welcome just because they can bring a lot to the table. I mean, you have the first and third largest economies in the world, the U.S. and Japan, working together in capacity building. That's a lot of effort, and frankly, the Southeast Asia partners need a lot of help, so... All the help we can get is very welcome. I think the Japanese have a particular advantage in Coast Guard capacity building, and you've seen that in a lot of their efforts with the Philippines and Vietnam. 
Japan has the advantage of being close, first of all. It's hard for the U.S. Coast Guard to do training and other exercises with Southeast Asian partners because they're so far away and not used to operating in Asia, whereas the Japanese, it's a short sail away. They can do a lot of this training. They're also used to the environment in East Asian waters, dealing with the Chinese Coast Guards. They have a lot of practical experience that's useful for Southeast Asian partners. I think that's been a real bright spot on military-to-military -military security cooperation. I think the Japanese are facing a learning curve. I mean, they only lifted their export ban in 2015, and so especially on the arms sales side, they're still getting their feet underneath them and kind of figuring out the landscape. And there's a lot of competition between not just the U.S., and but also Russia, European arms manufacturers, even China. So I think it's going to go a little more slowly for the Japanese, but I think it was a step in the right direction to lift the export ban. And there's definitely an opportunity for them to play a role in maritime surveillance, a strike, those sort of capabilities that people are really looking for. Why doesn't Japan join the United States in demonstrating freedom of navigation in the South China Sea with its own operations? Are there geopolitical or legal reasons behind its reluctance? Jeff Hartman argues that weighing the implications is crucial. Yeah, I think Japan's an interesting case and kind of unique where there is a desire for them to do more military in the Legion, but everyone, especially Southeast Asians and even the U.S., are cognizant of the dynamic between China and Japan and kind of the deep-seated animosity in China towards Japan. And I think it makes people want to approach this very cautiously. You don't want to get Japan involved in something that may seem like it's offering utility, but actually has a kind of broader blowback in the geopolitical situation. So I think you see this with the, the freedom of navigation operations, where Japan, in a broader strategic sense, has done a lot in the last few years. I mean, lifting their kind of restrictions on collective self-defense in 2014 was a very big strategic step forward, and that kind of addresses the big question in the region, which is, how do all of these like-minded countries work together to preserve security? So they're doing a lot of good work on the big picture things. But when you get to very tactical issues like FONOPS, it becomes a question where, on the one hand, yes, it would be great to have another country, major country like Japan, kind of registering their protest of excessive maritime claims in the South China Sea. In the abstract, that's nothing but good. But then you think about the possible implications where if Japan gets involved in the South China Sea, how does Beijing react? Then you have Southeast Asian capitals think about that. They get a little scared, but there's definitely concerns about how all this play out into the broader kind of geopolitical situation. And then you think about FONOPs have a certain amount of value, but they're also mostly a legalistic mechanism. A little bit of signaling is the value of having Japan participate in that. Does it balance with the potential blowback that you're going to get? I don't think anyone has a great answer to that yet. And it's a little, so it makes it more complicated than a country like Australia, where they're not going to have the same reaction in Beijing. People are more open, I think, to Australia participating in FONOPs in the United States, whereas Japan, there's still questions about everyone wants them to play a more direct military role, but how do you actually do that in practice in a way that reduces tensions rather than increasing them? And what about the future of Japan's relations with Southeast Asian nations? We asked Kay whether Japan should now consider moving beyond the Fukuda doctrine. Here's what he had to say. I believe it is uh, time to go beyond the uh, Fukuda doctrine. The Fukuda doctrine uh, uh, the, uh, essentially focused on the uh, Japan-Southeast Asia relations. Uh, in uh, this particular relations, its principles are, are still valid, and the uh, Japan and Southeast Asia can still uh, uh, embrace it. But the, uh, the problem or the, uh, the thing is, uh, Japan and Southeast Asia have enormously developed its political and economic infrastructure since 1977 when the Fukuda Doctrine was uh, created. Japan was capable of providing its self-defense force for international cooperation, uh, such as peacekeeping operation, counter-piracy, uh, humanitarian assistance, and disaster relief. Uh, most of the ASEAN member states are now politically and economically stable, uh, and Southeast Asia are uh, transformed from a conflict-prone region to the stable one. 
So uh, Japan and Southeast Asia should now focus on the wider uh, East Asia and create uh, the vision statement regarding what type of the East Asian regional order uh, Japan and Southeast Asian uh, countries uh, aspire. And um, here, uh, one idea is to emphasize creating a regional uh, rules-based order. Uh, Japan has long emphasized rule of law, uh, the democracy, and the human rights, while ASEAN, uh, since 2000, uh, have uh, also em emphasized such values and are now aiming at creating a rules-based uh, community in Southeast Asia. So uh, proposing a, a vision statement and seeking practical cooperation to implement it uh, would be the first step to go beyond the Africa Doctrine. How do closer Japan-Southeast Asia relations benefit Japan's treaty ally, the United States, over the long term? Should Washington support deeper ties between Tokyo and ASEAN countries? Dr. Koga makes the case. Uh, strategically, um, I think the strong Southeast Asia is beneficial uh, to the uh, East Asia uh, region, uh, regional states in East Asia as a, uh, and East Asia as a whole. Uh, while uh, ASEAN member states was concerned about great power intrusion uh, during the Cold War era, uh, this was also true uh, today for regional powers such as the United States, uh, Japan, and China, because uh, weaker Southeast Asia or divided Southeast Asia would exacerbate uh, the uh, great power competition in the region, not only economically, uh, but also the, uh, uh, the uh, militarily. So in this sense, it is important for regional powers to support and then strengthen the uh, ASEAN unity and political solidarity. Uh, historically, uh, if we take a look at the Fukuda doctrine and then the relations between uh, Japan and Southeast Asia, a strong Japan-ASEAN-Southeast uh, Asian ties help this trend. Uh, and then the, uh, uh, therefore, this is a beneficial to the United States. So um, I believe the United States should support strengthening ties uh, the, uh, between Japan and ASEAN, uh, while it also keeps engaging the uh, uh, Southeast Asia, because the United States have many resources uh, to strengthen ASEAN unity and enrich uh, the promote long-term stability in East Asia. As Japan continues its economic investments in Southeast Asia and expands its security footprint, here at CSIS, we'll be watching. That's our show. To learn more about this topic, look for a link to Dr. K. Koga's Strategic Japan Working Paper in the show notes. Special thanks to Jeff Hartman for providing his insight. The audio for this podcast was edited by Ribka Gemelingsari. The podcast was written and produced by Jeffrey Bean. To learn more, visit our new look CSIS.org and Kajadasia.com. You can follow our Asia programs on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, RSS, or email on CSIS.org. Stop by our Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative site for groundbreaking analysis in Maritime Asia, now in five languages, and check out our Reconnecting Asia feature on the threat of sea level rise. Also, be sure to listen to our latest China Power podcast on the future of democracy in Hong Kong. I'm Will Colson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>